Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. President Biden had another good week as inflation continues to decline across key market indicators like chicken wings and signed into law his signature climate, healthcare, and tax measure. Now, even the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, is suggesting that Democrats might retain the Senate and that the race for the House might be tighter. Republican candidates backed by Donald Trump also had a good week winning key primaries, including Harriet Hageman's beating of Liz Cheney for Wyoming's only congressional seat, a seat held by former Vice President Dick Cheney. Ukraine again struck Russian arms depots in Crimea as Kiev methodically lays the groundwork to take back Russian territory as tensions continue to rise over Russia's use of a seized Ukrainian nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia, Europe's largest, uh, that being used as a firebase. In Asia, China ended its war games around Taiwan as the United States sent a carrier battle group through the Taiwan Strait, a move that back in 1996 spurred China to develop capabilities specifically to prevent that from ever happening again. This, as political discord grips Japan in the wake of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's assassination over the LDP's close relationship with the Unification Church. Abe's killer was angry with the Unification Church, and Abe's brother Kishi just resigned from the cabinet because of his close ties to the church created by South Korean evangelist Sun Young Moon. And talks continue to revive the Iran nuclear deal uh, with some of the nations leading that negotiating task, questioning at this point, what's the point? Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who holds the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now affiliated with the Center for a New American Security and is the co-host of a terrific podcast called Brush Little Sprouts, uh, which I uh, recommend to anybody who's interested in uh, the Atlantic Alliance tune into, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations, and one of our usual number, Michael Herson of American Defense International, is off this week, but we look forward to him rejoining us next week. Everybody, thanks very much for uh, joining us. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And we're a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner. And our coverage of Britain's leading airshow was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. And a quick note to check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters uh, each week, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very much uh, for uh, joining us. Uh, Dove, I'm going to have you uh, start us off uh, this week. Uh, one of one of the big stories uh, was uh, the interim report prepared by the ranking member of the House uh, Foreign Affairs uh, Committee, uh, Republican Representative Michael McCall of Texas, was very, very critical of the administration's pullout uh, from Afghanistan. You would expect that from, from somebody who is a the strident opposition to President Biden and his policies uh, from his perch on uh, the Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, from your standpoint, why is this uh, report valuable uh, and why now? And most importantly, what are the lessons uh, to be learned? Because the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan had many fathers, including 
the last administration that basically, uh, you know, Ashraf Ghani's interview with Fariz Zakaria was very powerful, I thought, uh, with, um, you know, our close ally laying out how we felt that they were cut out of it, in part because uh, the Trump administration and then followed by the Biden administration wanted out of Afghanistan. And so it all fell apart. Um, what, what are the key takeaways from your standpoint? What's to be learned? And I should note that uh, you have a piece in The Hill uh, today about, uh, uh, about the, the report uh, and some lessons and calls out the administration for, not, for being somewhat uh, parsimonious, maybe with the truth from your perspective. Well, yeah, uh, look, the, the debate about who lost Afghanistan will probably go on as long as the debate about who lost China went on many, many years ago. Um, McCall uh, has issued what he calls an interim report. It's uh, pretty big for an interim report. It's 120 pages. Uh, and of course, he calls out the Biden administration, particularly for the chaotic exit. The Biden administration, for its part, the National Security Council, issued a memo, uh, which maybe you saw as well, Vago, went around to the uh, press uh, as a kind of preemptive strike before the report actually appeared, uh, saying how it was all wrong, it was selective, it was distorting information and all the other stuff that usually comes out when you attack something. Um, my point today, and it's frankly, it's a big worry and, it, and it, it's not really a matter of whom to blame. It's just the reality. Uh, one of the things the report said was that Al Qaeda is reconstituting and this uh, memo coming out of the White House said on the contrary, uh, it's not. And not only that, we were able to get also a Uh It shows that we can get the terrorists. And, and my point is was that uh, the number two guy in, in the Afghanistan government happens to be Mr. Haqqani, the leader of the Haqqani group or Haqqani network that actually was uh, more terrifying than the Taliban itself. That's had longstanding uh, contacts with um, not only the Taliban, but with Al Qaeda. Uh, the man himself, Sarajuddin uh, uh, Haqqani, is actually, there's a price on his head still from the State Department. Uh, so this is a guy that's a, an unabashed terrorist who's going to be supporting the people who don't want to just fight in Afghanistan. They want to fight everywhere. And the, to think that they're going to have the kinds of big open bases or training camps that they had when we went in in 2001, in which I saw, uh, that's ridiculous. They're not going to do that anymore. They know better and he'll protect them. And when you're talking about a country the size of Texas, it's kind of hard to imagine that a couple of drones are going to make a big difference. So this is a real worry. Um, as for some of the other points in the report, like I say, there are generals who say that we were wrong to get out. There are generals who say that we were, we were right to get out. This is going to go on for some time. And of course, it does play into the election as well. Uh, you're right. This has been a good couple of weeks for Mr. Biden. He has signed a whole bunch of laws. He's demonstrated, by the way, that you can be bipartisan, much to the consternation of the Democratic left and, frankly, the Republican right. Uh, and I think that is in part uh, plus uh, the fact that the right, that the Republicans have put up some awful candidates. Uh, Mr. Oz up in Pennsylvania, it's just been found out that he owns 10 homes when he said he owned two. Uh, and he spent most of his life in New Jersey. He ain't a strong candidate. There are a few others like that. And that's why I think uh, uh, ranking uh, rather minority leader uh, McConnell is is really down. Uh, he knows that uh, they've just got some awful candidates, something we've been talking about on, on this podcast for weeks. Uh, many of us believe 
the uh, House will go to the Republicans, but not by a huge majority like some thought originally. And the Senate may well stay Democratic. And if it does, by the way, uh, when you actually look at how the Senate has behaved this past year or two relative to the defense budgets that the administration has uh, sent over, uh, it's plus them up anyway. And it's not at all clear that uh, Republicans in the House will be as enthusiastic about adding to the budget as the Democrats in the Senate are. So um, if there's this kind of split, then I think on balance, uh, the defense budget will stay relatively healthy. Uh, and I, I should point out, right, uh, something that you said uh, during uh, the campaign and afterwards is something that Paul Krugman uh, wrote about in The Times this week, right, saying that, you know, I mean, folks opted for uh, Biden in part uh, to deliver competent government. And it appears that he is delivering a degree of competence to government. Uh, I mean, obviously, I think we can agree that Afghanistan did not go well, although, uh, you know, marshalling allies and partners against China has gone well. Uh, I think bringing everybody together on Ukraine uh, has been also uh, very productive. Uh, let me just ask you another sort of political question, uh, Dove. Um, you know, you've you've always um, reflected common sense when it came to this, even when you would be in office, you were somebody who tried to hew to, to norms and standards. And, you know, you were always uh, very candid with reporters whenever you would talk to us. Um, I mean, it took us a long while to get to where we are, right? I understand the lionization of Liz Cheney, but the fact is her father, um, you know, was a win at all costs guy uh, ultimately and, and did bend norms and rules and within government that which he did not like um, was an adherent to, you could say the the Nixonian view of the infallibility of the presidency, right? As long as the president does it, it's legal. I think we saw that uh, after 9-11, uh, much to the consternation of many in Washington on both sides of the political aisle, right? I mean, ultimately, it took us a long time to get here. This wasn't just Donald Trump doing this stuff, right? Eric Cantor is a great object lesson where the inmates in the asylum concluded that the guy was not crazy. He was just would just say crazy stuff occasionally for their benefit. And they they killed him, uh, right? Um, politically, um, right? I mean, where where are we? What does this tell us? Because 20 of 27 or whatever, I mean, I apologize if I don't remember the right number of, of the folks who've been elected in some of these um, statewide elections are election deniers, uh, ultimately. And, and that's going to have big implications. I mean, Florida went by 500 some odd votes for George W. Bush only when you got rid of thousands of votes for Al Gore, ultimately, right? I mean, so this is not necessarily a new phenomenon. Um, well, look, I mean, where, look, where are we going? Right. Fargo, I mean, what's I mean, the next phases of this? You're, you're obviously because Trump is stronger than ever now after this last week and week well, and a half. You're, you're trying to get my back up. And I suppose to some extent you've succeeded. Um, you know, uh, uh, the 2000 election wasn't uh, the mayor of Chicago dumping votes into Lake Michigan. So let's be let's be clear about this. Uh, and um, you know, uh, the 5,000 votes is an allegation that's not all that different, by the way, from what Mr. Trump was saying about the 2020 election, that it was stolen. So, you know, uh, let's let's kind of move that one aside. If you want to look at what's happened to the party and your allegation that and that's not just yours. I mean, I've seen a lot of particularly uh, Democratic columnists say the exact same thing. Um, Look at all the Republicans who've decided not to run again. 
That's precisely because they were moderates, because they did not go with the, the kind of crazy flow that uh, Mr. Trump has encouraged. And I would argue that uh, beginning in 2015, when Trump announced that he was running, he changed the fundamental direction of the Republican Party. I mean, look at the relationship between the Republican Party and business. It's gone sour and it's gone sour because business is not in the in the business of radicalization on the right. Uh, you've got to give. Were there others out there before? Of course, there was. There was Pat Buchanan, who I have long insisted is an anti-Semite and an isolationist and a racist. He was there a long time before Trump. But what Trump was able to do was bring out the worst in people that no one else had been able to do. And to that extent, I give him an awful lot of credit for turning this country on its head. Uh, but is it a 20-year process, as some uh, authors have written and columnists have written? No, it's not a 20-year process. And I think it's a very, very, uh, it's exceedingly unfair to all those Republicans who decided they didn't want to stay in government anymore precisely because they didn't like what was going on. I think it's very unfair to them. I uh, would say the very same thing on the left, right? I mean, there are a lot of uh, moderate members who find themselves on the outs um, who would have delivered very good government. Uh, who've been pushed out as well, right? I mean, so the polarization of the parties, uh, alas, is something that we have to that we have to we have to live with. This um, this is the, this is not something we should live with. The polarization of the parties is destroying this country, and those in the in the on the moderate right, and even to the right of the moderate right, and on the moderate left, and even somewhat slightly to the left of the moderate left, the great circle of those people have to come together. Otherwise, this country is going to go exactly in the direction that Vladimir Putin has wanted them to go. Um, I, I would I would agree with you. So what does the immediate future for that look like? And does and has Joe Biden, in a sense, sort of helped move the needle more to the moderate middle and then give a little bit of traction for the center to expand from there in your yeah, I, I think I think he has um, not necessarily the Democratic middle. It's also the the, the Republican extremists like Dr. Oz uh, have basically, as I said, uh, given Mr. McConnell, Senator McConnell, a major headache. And clearly, if you have a situation where you have a Democratic Senate and a Republican Congress, but the Republican majority is nothing like what they thought it would be. You now have given Mr. Biden a real uh, opportunity to push even more toward the center. He's, and as long as he ignores his left, which he's been doing in the last four or five months, he's going to get results, which he's beginning to get. I, I was just trying to facilitate debate. Um, I was not grinding any particular political acts, but it's been interesting to me that, that close uh, Republican friends of mine have actually raised this sort of what have we begot? Uh, was was the point. And so that was the driving. I wasn't trying to get your back up uh, with no, that no, question, no, no, but it was no, actually no. a conversation I was having with a Republican friends of mine yeah. this week. That, and there was a little bit of lamentation on, you know, there's a whole series of things that we did. What can we learn from this as as we as we go uh, forward? And there is that debate is happening on the left as well. Right. We were all more successful with moderate centrist candidates than we were with with leftist uh, candidates, yeah, but I, you know, I, look, I, I understand where you're coming from, but I, I think even when you look at Cheney, what Cheney did was play games inside the executive branch. What he didn't do was challenge the fundamentals of of the way constitutional government works, which is what 
Trump did and what he's gotten other people to do. And that's the great danger. I mean, bureaucratic politics, look, you got to give Dick Cheney credit. He was a hell of a bureaucratic operator. And finally, you know, uh, the president got tired of it, as you know, in the last couple of years. Um, but even Dick Cheney did not do anything remotely like what uh, Trump did. And Trump literally brought out the worst in this country. And we know there have been element, bad elements in this country for many, many years. It's just that everybody else tried to suppress them. And Trump did the opposite. Uh, everybody, thanks for being so patient with us uh, for the uh, political rough and uh, tumble. Jim, I want to br bring you into the discussion. Um, certainly, um, the war, Russia's war on Ukraine uh, continues. Ukraine, uh, you know, executing some strikes that's leaving everybody sort of baffled on how it is they're going about doing uh, these strikes. Uh, by the way, right, they're longer than any HIMARS uh, strike, especially the strikes in Crimea. And then the question is, obviously, Russians have to be asking themselves whether these are collaborators or partisans, uh, as, uh, as, as the Ukrainians uh, have said they are. Oleg Kashin, a Russian reporter living in London, wrote a great op-ed in the New York Times, uh, who will get rid of Putin? The answer is grim and grim indeed. And essentially his point is the only way to get rid of Putin is for Ukraine to beat Russia on the battlefield. Uh, just, you know, noting Russian history, the changes uh, in leadership only uh, come that way. Senior U.S. and European leaders certainly used to say that, whereas they're they're not saying that anymore. Where where do we stand, and what's next in this war, from from your perspective? I don't see any change in the battlefield coming anytime soon. That's for sure. So, getting rid of Putin based on something happening uh, on the ground isn't going to happen anytime soon. Number one, and number two, even if it did, I'm not so sure that would automatically mean that, that Putin is out. I think this is uh, everyone is grasping for some straws here on how can we get him to leave the scene? Is it going to be, uh, you know, some type of uprising, some type of technocratic move, some type of oligarch move, uh, a military move, a political move? I don't, he's got his bases covered in terms of protecting himself. So even a victory on the battlefield isn't going to necessarily mean he's he's out of there. And the second point, Vago, is that. Um, the battlefield that we're dealing with now is not something that, uh, you know, is, is a repeat of things we've seen in the past. We're not going to see a counteroffensive that looks like a, you know, in terms of Ukraine, that looks like something out of Hollywood, you know, tanks going and aircraft, this type of thing. I think we're really in for a something more aligned to a border war. This isn't going to be like Georgia where every now and then there's there's some uh, moves uh, there between the Russians and, and the Georgians. This is gonna be not a frozen conflict. I think we're gonna see something that's gonna settle into a border war where we're gonna see flare-ups, we're gonna see artillery duels, we're gonna see a move here and a move there. Um, it's, it's, gonna, it's not gonna be big, big uh, muscle movements on the battleground, that's for sure. And nothing so big as to remove Putin. And uh, you expect things then to remain static uh, and relatively static throughout throughout the winter. And if things do remain static, does Western support for Ukraine continue at a level that's it's been continuing? Right. I mean, if if you look like you're not making progress, a strategist would say you've got to keep investing in this because this is a longer term project, whereas some might say, eh, eh, you know, especially if Europeans have a bad winter. Well, that's a really important point, this, this one about showing success. I mean, we've talked about the winters in the past and how that might sap some of uh, 
Europe's enthusiasm uh, for supporting Ukraine. But I think this point about having success on the battlefield and showing that is critical. And I keep thinking back to the American Civil War where Lincoln needed to show success on the battlefield against Lee. Uh, he needed to do that not just for his own reelection, but to keep support from overseas as well, particularly from the British and the French. I mean, the British, as you know, were were looking kindly upon the South and, and Lincoln needed to show the, the Brits that they were backing the wrong horse. Uh, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, Ukraine needs to do the same thing. President Zelensky um, has been, um, I think the, the success of the HIMARS particularly um, has shown the West and shown the United States that we know how to use your equipment. We need more of this. If we get more of this, we'll be able to do more. Trust us, um, we, we, can, we can do something here. Um, in Ukraine, keep supporting us. And that's the kind of message that through the winter, he's gonna need to show as well. I think the, um, this partisan or, or whatever's happening there in Crimea, um, that's something else showing that Ukraine is creative. The military strategists there, they're creative. Um, they're able to do things perhaps with special forces, whatever that might be. But it's this idea of showing success um, showing competence, showing that the equipment that's being provided by the U.S. and others is not being misused. But at the same time, it's not being given in enough mass so that you can, Ukraine can actually do something big on the battlefield. The mass for Ukraine is just not there for a counteroffensive that would really show that uh, he's able to push Russia out of Ukraine. But, you know, the, the Ukrainians also have been striking targets uh, in Russia, and it appears uh, potentially increasing, increasingly uh, so. Um, you know, does this create a problem for the United States? And is there a spillover into NATO as a consequence from your perspective? And I'm happy to have uh, others sort of weigh, weigh in on this, uh, uh, you know, Dove and Patrick. But um, I'm just interested in, in sort of where... Where this yeah. because the Russians also have been very cleverly using Wagner Group, right? Um, you know, re literally recruiting murderers and you know saying, "Hey, uh, you know," and then lionizing their successes. They've well, had some successes, but not that many successes, right? To you know, strategically kind of move the needle in this, right? I mean, well, so what, being, what do you see as the next phases of this? Well, they're not being creative in using the Wagner Group and the criminals and others. There, this is out of desperation. I mean, Putin does not want to have um, a big military mobilization within Russia. Um, why uh, we feel that's the case for Putin? I mean, people think that it's because he remembers Chechnya and the domestic turmoil that having a big mobilization uh, can produce. And also, sh you know, having a big mo mobilization shows that his original plans for Ukraine were wrong. I think we all know that, but he doesn't want the to have a, mo a, a big mobilization to, uh, to really underline you know, his, his awkward starting uh, efforts there in Ukraine. So he's not really being creative here. I think he's out of desperation. He's trying to find other sources of manpower. And even uh, that is not going so well. I mean, Wagner, they're not a combat group. You know? They're a bunch of thugs. Uh, and a bunch of thugs can only do so much on a modern battlefield. And the uh, reservists he's, he's bringing in and some of the other sources of manpower, um, they're not bringing in the kinds of, of trained combat forces that he's gonna need if he's gonna have something done on the battlefield, particularly there in the South. So, so I, don't, I don't look on uh, that as being creative, but, but in, in terms of spillover into NATO or problems for the United States, in terms of hitting some of these uh, places in Russia, I, I don't think those are 
issues. Um, and I don't see many people who feel that they could be issues except for the administration. And I think the Biden administration by wringing its hands over you know, what might happen in terms of Ukraine doing some pinprick uh, strikes into Russia, I think that's uh, really over the top. And uh, easy for me to say, I realize if I was in the administration, maybe I'd be more cautious, but I really believe looking at it from the outside, I, I cannot see uh, why we worry so much about the Russian reaction of, of what uh, Ukraine might do in, in Russia proper, quite frankly. Um, look, I mean, my, my attitude towards this is don't start a war. You won't have negative repercussions. You've got to be a complete idiot not to recognize that, um, you know, Ukraine has its own indigenous national capabilities it can deploy against the Russians, and it doesn't necessarily have to be high Mars landing on them. And in that case, I think it's perfectly legitimate for the Ukrainians to shoot high Mars uh, into Russia, uh, quite frankly. Uh, right. I mean, they're a sovereign state that's under attack and the Russian regime has made it clear that they want to crush Ukraine as an independent, sovereign, viable state. You right. made it existential for him. You know, it's it's perfectly OK. Uh, you know, um, you know, don't don't start a fight with Mike Tyson and you won't get punched in the face. Right. Well, I mean, ultimately, exactly. you can't then complain about it. That sounds like good advice for any of those who deal with Mike Tyson. I think I that's would, exactly I, right. And, and, I, and I do believe that at some point, the administration and the West are going to have to deal with this issue of holding back um, a lot of assistance or dribbling it in because they're afraid of a Russian reaction. I know there's other other things to think about, too, in terms of why the pace is slower than we want it to be. I mean, there's training and maintenance and there's all kinds of things, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the holdings that we have in the U.S. that we don't want to deplete uh, too quickly. I mean, that's those are the kinds of things that keep the pace a little bit slower. But at the same time, I think if this political decision is being made because of hand wringing uh, on the NSC staff or at the White House, I think we've got to come to grips with that, because at some point we're going to have to do more for Ukraine than we're doing now if we want them to have a chance to push at least the Russians uh, back, uh, you know, further east uh, as best we can. But right now, uh, that's not where either side is in terms of making big moves on the battlefield. Appreciate, you know, the need to move cautiously. But I think that when you move too cautiously, it's problematic and you send uh, the, the, the very, uh, very much the, the wrong uh, signal. Um, uh, Patrick and Dove, do you guys want to briefly weigh into this uh, before we go to the Pacific uh, part yeah. of the conversation? Patrick, you've been very yeah. patient. Let, let go me ahead. just go ahead, Dub first, and then I'll add on. Yeah. Thanks, Patrick. Uh, well, Jim is fundamentally right, and the, the phrase hand-wringing is right. You know, the administration has this, this track record of not being wrong, but being very, very slow. And, and that's what's happening again. I mean, clearly, if you want to send the Russians a message, uh, one of the ways to do it is to attack them on their own territory. Uh, and uh, that uh, should not be a reason for the United States to uh, put conditions on what it's been giving uh, the Ukrainians, which in fact right now it has put. The other thing that's really important is that it, it appears that the big Western European countries and even Poland are running out of gas uh, in terms of how much they can really support the Ukrainians. It's more and more looking like really it's up to us and on America's shoulders. 
which shouldn't really be surprising if you go back to the operation in Libya, where, frankly, if we hadn't bailed out the French and the British, they couldn't have done very much in the end. So that shouldn't be a surprise. So therefore, the issue of how quickly and how consistently we support the Ukrainians over the longer term becomes actually absolutely central to the prospects for Ukraine remaining independent. Patrick? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with all the uh, points that Jem and Dove made. I mean, Jem, that there is largely a stalemate in Ukraine, that NATO is strong and relatively safe, and that Dove is right to criticize the administration for sometimes being too slow. But I would frame this Russia-Ukraine war in slightly different terms, and maybe that's because I'm looking more internationally at, at this. Um, there, there already is a great deal of spillover from this war uh, well outside of Ukraine. Um, read Sir Jeremy Fleming's uh, latest warning out of GCHQ about the information warfare, that it's been very successful in helping Ukraine against Russia in Ukraine. But in many places in the world, uh, Russia is chipping away at the notion that support for Ukraine um, should continue or prevail. Um, and when you think about now Vladimir Putin's decision to go to Bali uh, with Xi Jinping in November uh, for the G20 meeting that Indonesia will host, um, you can see some very high level diplomacy potentially shaping up at the end of this year where China and Russia want to put a lot of pressure on Europe, the United States and U.S. allies in Asia. Um, we'll see whether that transpires. Meanwhile, on the NATO front, um, there's still the specter of a nuclear demonstration strike or something even coming out of the nuclear plant that uh, sends shutters in East Asia because of the potential for sending a signal to a country like North Korea that nuclear weapons are not just about deterrence, but can actually be used. And there's that that is coming more and more in sight as in terms of something plausible. Uh, and then finally, uh, Russia has clearly put down a red line that if U.S. and Western arms are used by Ukraine to attack Russian soil, um, they've reserved the right to reach out uh, and hurt somebody beyond Ukraine. That may be a bluff, um, but I think the administration is not wrong to be um, you know, cautious about some of these issues, even if I still agree with Dove that, yeah, we can't be slow. We can't we can't uh, wring our hands, as Jim says. But at the same time, uh, there is a lot at stake here. Russia will not be defeated on the battlefield, from my perspective, especially in a battle we're not even willing to go on the ground on. I was talking to a Russian historian who lives out of the country this week. Um, he made it very clear that Putin has essentially the Solzhenitsyn greater Russia perspective of an orthodox driven nationalism. That includes Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, and probably parts of ethnic Kazakhstan. Um, the, the idea of Russia. Exactly. And um, he said he'll never be able to go back to Russia as long as Putin's uh, in power. Uh, and he and his Russian friends who now live outside of the country will never be able to go back as long as Putin's in power. Um, and he he has resigned to that uh, and sees no sort of short end to that. That doesn't mean your basic point in leading into the discussion with Jim about uh, you know losing on the battlefield would be a decisive blow to Putin. I, I agree, but I don't see how that decisive blow is dealt in the way we're managing this conflict right now. But uh, I mean, one um, caveat that I would put on this, uh, and Jim, I, I welcome you to come back on this. At, at some point, we are self-governing and the Russians at whatever point were going to take action against NATO in the time and place of their choosing in a manner of their choosing was, you know what I mean? So this whole notion of you don't want it to go nuclear, he's been paving the way for nuclear, right? I mean, so whether we end up there or not, we may end up there anyway. 
And so we need to come to grips with that and not be self-deterred because I think it's pretty obvious that ultimately the Russians are the ones who lose in this. I don't think we're being nearly as tough. I would cut off all, I think this whole notion that Schultz has put out, you know, our, our fight is not with the Russian people. I mean, this is as absurd to me as, you know, we, we would somehow try to fight Hitler without bringing the fight to the German people or the Japanese regime without bringing the fight to the Japanese. I mean, ultimately they are going to get hurt in this. And so I should not be taking pictures for Russian tourists in front of the White House, I think is, is absurd. Keep them in the country, keep them locked up in the country. They can't travel elsewhere. Well, that's going to have an economic impact. Well, alas, it will. I mean, you know, you make an omelet, you got to break some eggs. I mean, ultimately, I think this whole, he's going to lash out somewhere, he lashes out somewhere, then he has a war on his hands with the NATO alliance, right? Um, so anyway, I, I don't think you can have this always and have a completely risk-free strategy. Um, and it can't be risk-free for the Russians. It has to be painful for the Russians. And I would make it a lot more painful for them. I don't believe it's as painful as it needs to be uh, for, for Russia. And I don't think we're as good on the information game as well. Uh, Jim, just to bring you in briefly, uh, because we do have to, there are a whole bunch of Asia questions I've got to ask Patrick, uh, even though he is very thoughtfully weighed in uh, on NATO. Well, I don't want to take a time from Patrick because we do need to get to his issues, but I, you know, I, we are going to have to be tougher. We've, we've in a sense fired a lot of our guns up front and uh, with the sanctions and other things, we're going to have to up our game and it's going to be tricky to do it uh, at, even in a tighter manner for some of the reasons you pointed out in terms of concerns about uh, uh, a Russian nuclear saber rattling that's more than just rattling. Uh, but we're going to have to, we're going to have to walk that, that uh, tightrope soon and i just think like dub said we're, we're we're just i don't i'm not sure how engaged we are to try to figure out what's the next level here perhaps we're having lots of tiger teams and they're meeting and they're talking about these things i haven't heard a peep about it but uh but i think it's obvious now that we're going to have to up the game and it is going to fall to the united states to do it i think the west in a lot of ways the the cupboard is empty uh over over the atlantic and uh and i think a lot of it's falling on us but over to patrick um, I, I, would, I would say, right, I mean, the, the Russians are going to keep grinding on and try to destroy Ukraine as a, as a viable state. Um, you know, uh, Roger Cohen just had a piece uh, in The New York Times that Odessa, you know, remains the target. He, he wants to take that seacoast and be able to stop uh, Ukraine from doing all trade. Uh, this That's green right. deal is an intermediate uh, step uh, in, in, his, in his wider strategy. Uh, you right. know, we, we may have all the, all the watches and clocks. They have all the time. Uh, I, I, as I recall from the terrorist uh, discussion days. Um, Patrick, uh, China um, is through with its temper tantrum. Uh, the United States punctuated it by sailing a carrier battle group through the Taiwan Strait to sort of indicate we're uh, all about freedom of navigation in international waters. And this is an international waterway. Thank you very much. Um, from your perspective, where are we and what's your point? Uh, you know, Chip Gregson uh, pinch hit for you last week, and we were glad to have him on the program. And Chip said that he thought that the Chinese actually had shifted from peaceful unification mentally to forceful unification. We had uh, Dr. Tim Heath of Rand uh, on uh, last yesterday's program for one of our strategy discussions. And Tim was actually a little bit more measured and said, look, the, the Chinese are going to make a ma massive shift to a systemic war approach, whether low or high intensity, Rand did a great report on that, 
um, in a much more deliberative fashion if it feels the entire global deck is stacked against it, right? At this point, it doesn't, and the administration is being very careful, push back while still engaging, still do trade, push back on the illegal aspects of that trade, but don't, um, you know, because ultimately we are economically codependent. What, what's your sense on, on where Beijing is now uh, in the wake of two very prominent visits, right? Ed Markey led one and Nancy Pelosi led the other. And, and more are coming, by the way, right? I mean, this does empower other nations to send their diplomats, uh, which is which is what has China so worked on. Not to mention, if the Republicans take the House, we could see a Speaker McCarthy lead a bipartisan delegation next year. But I'm jumping ahead. Um, let's come back to uh, just reflecting on the last couple of weeks of what we've seen around Taiwan and China's response. I think at this point, rather than try to project long term into the future, China's future actions, is that they have clearly shown their determination to achieve unification, uh, and that in you know in Xi's point that this is vital to his vision for national rejuvenation of China, um, and that's clear. So as long as Xi's in power, uh, and right now that's for the indefinite future, um, and uh, this is going to be part of this determination, no matter how it's done. And I, it, you know, we we saw this this week in the People's Daily and elsewhere in China on their on their television. Um, Xi Jinping visiting China's northeast province of Laoshan. This is the province right next to North Korea. This is also the location where the communist forces decisively defeated Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist forces in the fall of 1948, which was really the prelude to the end. You know, it was the, it was the success of what the Chinese called the liberation, the revolution, of, you know, succeeded uh, in 49 with the PRC's uh, installation. Um, and there's a video that the Chinese are showing of a 94-year-old veteran, Chinese veteran, fully, you know, fully decked in his uniform and medals, 94 years old. He's there wagging his finger saying, we will protect the revolution. And, and even though this is in Northeast China, this is clearly a message to Taiwan and to the United States. He said, we're going to fight to the last man. Um, you know, and that's consistent with Xi's warning to Biden in their fifth and most recent phone call. Uh, before the crisis over the Pelosi visit, um, and uh, where he said, let me warn you, you know, fire, you know, don't play with fire. Um, and so he's, they're still giving this strong warning, this termination. Now, substantively on the military side, what they've done is they've escalated the military pressure to a new normal. Um, and uh, so they're doing not just deterrence in terms of we'll block you Americans from intervening to resupply and protect these separatists, as they would call them in Taiwan, uh, but we're also going to be increasingly using our military forces and might and threats for compellents to convince Taiwan not to move toward, uh, but to move, uh, you know, toward the mainland, not away from the mainland, uh, and halt any kind of high-level political visits and anything that encourages independence. That's not going to succeed uh, because, as you said, Vago, we're we're going to see more of these visits. In fact, we saw one right after the speaker, you know, left. You know, with with Senator Markey's bipartisan delegation uh, this past week, and, and it's going to continue. Um, so I think neither the legislative nor the executive branch of the United States is going to back down um, from these threats. They they read Josh Rogan's excellent uh, Washington Post uh, op-ed this week, perhaps that you know don't drink the Beijing Kool Aid on this issue. Um, they have their narrative. We need to respect and understand where they're coming from, but we don't need to uh, adhere to it. <laughs> we need to stick up for our uh, interests and uh, our interpretation of the one China policy, not their one China principle. So um, I think that's where uh, this test will be made. Right now, we saw a new crisis, right? The Taiwan 
uh, U.S.-Taiwan Initiative for 21st Century Trade was announced uh, by, uh, uh, you know, the um, U.S. Uh, Trade Representative Ambassador Catherine Tai, saying we're going to begin these negotiations, should take about a year, to better integrate Taiwan's economy across many sectors to help ensure supply chains. It's not a free trade agreement, but it uh, looks very much like trying to make Taiwan less dependent, less vulnerable to mainland coercion. Uh, and that's what China is now uh, uh, seething about. So now Taiwan's asking for not just asymmetric weapons, but more symmetric weapons. Uh, and so it's clear that this is now the political debate in Washington for Congress and for the executive branch and with allies to figure out how can we provide uh, a combination of asymmetric and symmetric weapons uh, without further unduly provoking uh, China, even though uh, you know that's almost impossible because China's determined to already keep the dial, dial up the pressure and to maintain this new level of tension. So that's where I see where we are right now. And I mentioned Bali, a lot could happen if we end up having uh, this first meeting between President Biden and Xi Jinping in Bali, uh, because they have a lot, uh, a lot to deal with. They'd be well chaperoned by Indonesia's President, uh, uh, you know, Jokowi, and he would be um, very careful to make sure there was no fireworks coming out of Indonesia. But you can imagine the diplomacy before and after that meeting could be fairly heated. What do you think the prospects are for the Taiwan Policy Act? Uh, and I mean, I, I should I should point out, and I think many people um, acknowledge this: the Chinese are have been acting out and have been trying to boil the frog for a long time and continuously move the needle. They were going to make a demonstration like this. Okay, what, maybe it was the Pelosi visit, arms package, right? I mean, it, something was going to trigger the rage, right? It just happened to be that this is what triggered it. But I mean, that trigger exists. I mean, this is my same point with Putin. It may be going nuclear in his mind anyway, even if you try to do everything you can to avoid that. I'm not saying be irresponsible and trigger it, but you have to be conscious that that guy in his mind may be interested in attacking you and indeed has been attacking you, right? I mean, you could look at a lot of the actions the Chinese have been taking, whether in space and cyber and elsewhere as part of uh, concerted offensive, right? I mean, certainly on the espionage front, right? So in, in your mind, what does the Taiwan Policy Act, which is what you're talking about, mean? And then what is Beijing's reaction to that, right? I mean, what is it we've got to be prepared for uh, once we do that? Well, th there's a lot of uh, guessing going on here, and it even relates to the uh, you know, Ukraine-Russia war as well in terms of thinking about uh, second-guessing ourselves because of a response that may or may not be coming from Russia, or in this case, China. Um, I think I, I first of all agree with Kurt Campbell that when he talked last week about uh, this is China sees this as an opportunity. They were waiting for that opportunity, as you suggested, Vago, um, to make their point, especially a few months before the 20th Party Congress, uh, and especially because she has been adamant that uh, the Taiwan unification is his issue for rejuvenation and for his uh, success and legacy. So, um, you know, this was just a, an opportunity for him. Uh, and we've given it to him. And yet um, he could have found many other opportunities. So I wouldn't blame the, the visit for it. Uh, it. It was just the uh, the, the latest uh, incident he could seize. Um, and I think uh, more congressional action will be taken as, uh, a, as a, a reason to push back and elevate further. So what we've seen militarily, what does that mean on the ground? It means, you know, they've destroyed the median line in the Taiwan Strait. And as you, you suggested earlier, 
Um, they no longer uh, want to call it an international waterway. Um, they want to make sure it's seen as uh, domestic waters uh, for, for China. Um, we cannot let that stand. Uh, we will not let that stand. Um, and um, there's going to be a, a lot of tension over this issue. The Chinese are also saying that the Biden administration's formulation, which they came in on, on China policy from the very beginning, of saying we're going to have competition, but cooperation, and where necessary confrontation, they're saying that's untenable. So they're they're basically rejecting the whole premise of U.S. foreign policy toward China right now. Uh, and I, I can, if I can add to that, they are not just failing to cooperate on issues like climate change or North Korea policy. They are actually undermining, uh, or in case of North Korea, North Korea policy. Um, how do I say that? I mean, for instance, not only are they giving an unconditional blank check to North Korea, basically to do what it wants, um, and I think we'll see this uh, pan out by the end of the year with eventually a seventh nuclear test, not this month because of the rainy season uh, in, in in the nuclear test site, and not because of the right before the 20th Party Congress. But after that, I think we're going to see an inevitable growth and expansion of WMD out of uh, North Korea. And we're even going to see North Korean arms pour into Russia, uh, well, uh, into the Donbass, you know, so not not into Russia, but uh, in support of Russia. Uh, and we may even see some North Korean troops in uh, the Donbass. All of this because China is giving such unconditional support to North Korea, uh, despite, I think, the United States. Um, it, they'll look after their interests in terms of maintaining stability over the Korean border, but in the meantime, anything they can do to um, horizontally escalate, um, you know, horizontal escalation can be played by both parties, I think is what I would say about China's approach right now. Because the United States has been saying, we don't have to escalate right at Taiwan. We can escalate internationally to put pressure on China to make sure that, you know, they give uh, Taiwan the space to breathe and don't force it uh, into uh, coercively or unify by force. So we're in for... Uh, you know, more deterrence and defense and, uh, and, 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 and political posturing over who has the political will. And right now, China wants to say, we not only have the superior socialist system, uh, we have the superior political will on this issue. Um, and that's their line. But again, to quote Josh Rogan, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. But again, I mean, that warning has been uh, out uh, for a long time. And that's why um, this whole notion that Beijing cannot somehow control Tianyang is utter baloney. The, the Chinese have been very adept at using uh, the North Koreans as a mechanism, uh, whether to help sheer, steer uh, South Korean policy, whether to steer uh, Japanese policy uh, and keep, you know, it's, it is an important regional distraction and served as a distraction. So this whole, but whenever uh, the, the North Korean dog had to be curbed, Beijing was able to curb it if it wanted to. Um, and so this whole notion that these are disconnected, um, you know, oh, you know, Beijing shrugging. I, you know, you know, I'm just an unruly kid. I mean, I can't control them. Uh, is is just bunk. Uh, and so we've been buying into this Kool Aid, unfortunately, uh, for a very long period of time. Despite the ample warnings on the container, do not drink um, the the Kool Aid. Um, I, I, we're we're going to go into a little bit of a lightning round. I know uh, Dove uh, wants to jump in. I have to ask you very quickly about the LDP um, and the turmoil the party is going through. Uh, right, uh, obviously, clear links between the LDP and the Unification Church. Um, I mean, that's not to say that Shinzo Abe was di uh, directly linked, but the party has taken money from the church uh, and it uh, manifested itself with a dead former prime minister um, by an assassin who was protesting 
uh, I think his sister, um, falling into what some people define as a cult. Uh, other people see it as a legitimate, peaceful religion. Um, what, what is the impact going to be on Japanese politics in a more sustained manner, uh, Patrick? Well, it's one in the many uh, long line of scandals uh, politically in Japan that uh, come and go. And I see this as uh, sticking around probably longer than most scandals, but not fundamentally changing anything in the body politic of, of Japan right now. And why do I say that? Well, partly because the upper house election has given um, Prime Minister Kishida, who's been in office 10 months as prime minister, uh, three years of clear running room to uh, articulate and to start to implement a new national security strategy to increase a substantially uh, the defense spending in Japan, uh, to talk about economic security in his new document that'll come out at the end of the year, early next year. Um, so, you know, yeah, we can get caught up and very mesmerized by the political domestic scandals in Japan, and they will have an impact on factions, and they may well lead to eventual restructuring of, of those factions and of even a, 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 a alternative party. But I don't see any of that happening in the short term or affecting the fundamental policy. Uh, I will just advertise that on Monday, I've got a program airing on Asia's new managers, and it's, it's oriented toward the fact that America's four democratic allies in the Indo-Pacific, and there are only four because Thailand is not currently a democracy, um, but the Philippines, Australia, Korea, and Japan all have new governments in, in the past three or four months in the case of everybody but Japan, which was 10 months ago. Um, and I think those countries, which are increasingly playing kind of middle power roles, are extremely important and influential as to whether we succeed in keeping up um, deterrence and pressure against uh, autocracy, but also uh, on uh, deterring conflict from breaking out. And I, it, you know, I think it's a very interesting time to see this. So we need a strong Japan. Uh, so I certainly hope that I'm not just, uh, you know, saying what I wish, but I, I really do think that the LDP has to remain strong. Prime Minister Kishida has to uh, follow up on this opportunity to ensure that to ensure that Japan plays its full role. Uh, for a free and open Indo-Pacific. We're almost entirely out of time. We have to go to a little bit of a lightning round. Um, Dove, I know you want to weigh in uh, briefly. Please weigh in and then give us an update on uh, what's going on uh, across the Middle East. Uh, and because what's going on is beyond uh, what's just happening with the Iran nuclear talks. Go ahead. Yes. Well, first of all, uh, just to add a little bit to what Patrick said, you've got another wild card here uh, regarding China, and that's the Congress. Uh, as Patrick knows well, the Chinese were very unhappy with the CHIPS Act. There is a push in Congress to upgrade the, the uh, status of the rep Taiwan representative office. Uh, the administration is not entirely thrilled with all this, but uh, who knows how Congress will continue to act, uh, especially once you have a new Congress. So that's a wild card that has to be considered as well. And uh, I suspect the Chinese are not too excited about it. Uh, if I could turn to the Middle East, uh, yes, the Iran deal is, is still some, it's on uh, life support, but it's still there. Uh, it's really going to be a win-win for the Iranians, whatever happens. Uh, the Iranians are saying uh, we are conditioning our agreement on uh, the UN no longer inspecting uh, the suspected sites that have some traces of uh, uh, uranium, that uh, uh, the sanctions uh, somehow go away, and that the uh, uh, IRGC, the Republican Guard, no longer is considered a terrorist group. If they get all that, they're very happy. Uh, on the other hand, uh, let's say the deal falls apart, then they go ahead with their nuclear program. They're still very happy. Uh, so for them, it's win-win. 
whether for the United States it's win-win is a whole other issue. Uh, the other big story in the Middle East, frankly, is the new uh, agreement between Turkey and Israel to restore full diplomatic relations uh, at the uh, not just at the consular level, but at a consul general level, but at the ambassadorial level. And that is not necessarily something the United States pushed. It's not the Abraham Accords. We're happy with it. But it gets really complicated. The Israelis are close to the Greeks and Cypriots. Uh, and have gas agreements with them. The Turks are on a very different uh, angle when it comes to the gas agreements. The Turks seem to want a, a pipeline from Israel to Europe. There are many Israelis who say that's the last thing we should do. We can't trust Mr. Erdogan. Uh, and so this gets really complicated for us as well in the United States, because even though Erdogan cut this deal on grain with Mr. Putin, he, there are reports coming out of Russia, which Turkey denies, but who knows who's telling the truth, that Erdogan's about to buy a second batch of S-400 missiles. So go figure it all out. But then again, it's the Middle East. I think uh, going back to Patrick's Kool-Aid thing, we, we have to really be a lot more strategic in how our adversaries are likely to behave as opposed and are behaving as opposed to necessarily how we would like them to always behave. Um, and, and it's not to say that we're not clear eyed and it's not to say that this administration, uh, up to your point, uh, and others on this program have said, right, they get to the right place. They just get there a little more slowly. Deliberation is great. Um, you want an administration to be deliberative and not go off half cocked. Um, but the fundamental nature of these relationships are, changing with two powers who had expected that no matter how badly they behave, it would not. And now they are behaving badly. They have a capacity to behave badly. They're acting out. And we need to be cognizant of that. And what are the second, third, fourth, fifth order consequences of that? As Patrick said, things are going to go bad to worse, likely more quickly than we imagine, even if we try to remain very measured uh, because we are upending what the Chinese plan was. And I don't believe that they are going to take that lightly. More discussion in the weeks ahead, guys. Thanks so very, very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, please have a great uh, day, a great weekend, and a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so very much.